Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. United in their belief that the light of God lives in everyone. Quakers are members of the Religious Society of Friends, a community whose origins date back to mid-17th century England. Hi, I'm Reverend Rob Way for the United Palace of Spiritual Arts, here with my co-host, Reverend Dr. Jose Roman. On today's episode, we will explore Quakers, the Religious Society of Friends, with Rini Link. Thank you for joining us. Isn't Quakerism um, referred to as also as the, the Society of Friends? Right, it is. Um, the Religious Society of Friends comes from, uh, from a biblical reference where I think it's in John, John 15, where he says, or Jesus says, you are my friends if you do as I command. And uh, so uh, early Quakers call themselves friends, um, friends of Jesus, friends of Jesus Christ. And um, they um, were called Quakers by a judge who was denigrating them, actually putting them down a little bit because they trembled and shook when they gave messages in their meetings. Mm. And um, they stuck to it and adopted the name and went from there. That's wow. Yeah. So really, what was it that brought you to Quakerism? Well, um, you know, Again, I told you, my father, I didn't live with my parents. I lived with my grandparents because my mother had mental health issues and my father and she divorced. And, but, and he was, but I saw them both on a regular basis. And my father was disturbed when he saw me gravitating towards religion uh, after I was baptized at age eight. And uh, And there's a reason for that. Your father had his own special commitments, correct? He was an atheist, um, but he was also an intellectual and very, um, you know, receiving of my opinions on things. He wasn't ever putting me down for, but he was worried about my becoming religious. So he gave me John Woolman's journal. And I think he thought of Quakers as being the social justice Christians of the world. And he, if I was going to go in that direction, he wanted me to go with friends. So um, I did read it. I was attracted to it. I went to a meeting in Scarsdale, New York. But I loved the stained glass of my Episcopal church that I went to by myself in my family um, all the years of my high school. And uh, I sang in the choir, and I just loved the ceremony of it. And so you really loved the spiritual artistry. I did of the yeah. tradition. Fascinating, right? Um, but when I went to college, um, I shifted from Episcopal uh, to Catholic because I learned about Henry VIII, and that was my reason for kind of like 
disassociating myself from the Episcopal Anglican tradition mm -hmm. and associating myself with the Catholic, more tradition, ancient mm -hmm. tradition of Christianity. Um, but then I went political. My freshman year, it was 63, 64, I went to my first anti-war rally in Washington, D.C., and um, began to see and was made fun of by a very, very dear teacher of mine who said she couldn't believe that I was attracted to Catholicism because I was an intelligent person. <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah. I dropped out of the church and went into politics, and that was it for a while. And then when I, I, I married, had some children, um, I had, on holiday times, I had a nostalgia for my church times a lot. And uh, I remember going to, with my two little children, to a little nativity scene in a Moravian church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and being in tears, not knowing how to tell them about this holiday and about this tradition. And I wanted it. I know I wanted it. And, but I couldn't find my way back intellectually until I finally, I met, uh, my, my first marriage broke up. I met my second, um, the, the man who would become my second husband, Herb. And uh, we met in North Carolina in Asheville uh, in a Quaker meeting because I had meandered back to Quakerism. Um, and uh, he introduced me to um, early Quakers. We read them avidly together. Um, we explored it. He had been brought up a Catholic and had left the, the church. Um, and he introduced me to it, and I loved it. And I found my way back to my faith in God, which I'm— be interested in talking about exactly mm. how, um, as yeah. you wish. Yeah. So, going to that, yeah, that that early Quakerism. Um, who was George Fox? Um, well, George Fox is the man who really began the movement. Um, and again, you know, the, the Reformation movement, the Protestant Reformation, began in the 1600s, mm -hmm. um, but. Uh, Quakerism uh, arose in England um, during the time of, you know, uh, agitation really in the, between the monarchy and uh, and the churches and everything. Um, and there were while Calvinism was pretty well established, and I believe George Fox, who was born I think in 1624, um, he was raised in a Calvinist uh, church. And he was devoted to it. He began to feel, and there was a lot of conversation and talk and, and disarray in the church and about things. Um, you know, the Catholic route, the Anglican route, the Calvinist route. Um, and he was upset by it. And I know he, uh, I, I won't tell too much about his story because anybody who can read his journal can find out his full story. But he was, he felt un, like a young man, like most young men and women, felt a little unsettled about what this faith thing was all about. And he kind of knew he didn't like his friends drinking too much. And he started, he, 
he went into a time where he felt like he had to go around and talk to people about how what he should believe in, where he should be rooted, and and everything. And he was very uh, uh, confused and everything. And he traveled a lot around England, met with all kinds of ministers and everything. And then um, he just he had this opening. He had this um, revelation um, that he had this. He had this voice within that was telling him what he should do and what he should not do. He looked at scripture in a very, very interesting way, which I have, as I've grown older, found even more interesting than I found in the 1980s when I started to explore this with my mm-hmm. husband. Um, and he, um, he eventually, you know, just left the church he was part of. He would go around, he would speak, um, and basically, uh, you know, one of the people who would put him up as he was traveling around the country, and I don't know how they did this at those times, but he would go to different churches, and I don't know whether he interrupted them or whether they had times when they asked people to talk, but he basically made himself a troublemaker in the churches, but basically... Mm. Um, and what he was sharing was what he was receiving through these that's so-called right. openings yeah, of these movements, correct? That's right. Um, and what's what's really interesting is I, I've been recently just doing a lot of rereading of philosophers, and this was I found so interesting. Just the other day, I was reading about Socrates, mm-hmm. and Socrates too, too in his Apology. He actually has a couple of sentences where he talks about why he never went into politics. And he said, even as a child, I had a voice within me that told me not to do that kind of, that that would tell me what to do, but it would not tell me what not to do. But basically it told him that he, he should not, he should avoid politics. And... That's exactly, I had also an experience of that when I was a little girl. And I didn't have that in my bio, but it's a really important story. Share it with us. All right. Well, I had a weird situation. I was growing up with my grandmother and grandfather. Um, My mother was in a mental institute in Upper New York State, spent most of her life there. My father was in the city, and I would see him on a regular basis. But... My grandfather, my grandmother died, and my grandfather and I were living alone in a little apartment in Yonkers. And um, I began to, we had just moved there from Ardsley. And I began to realize that I didn't fit in exactly with all my friends or for new friends that I was trying to make. And I had a picture in my room that was of a farm up in Vermont. And it was, a, I loved horses. And I would tell my friends when they would come to visit me that that was a farm that my parents had. And we had horses on the farm. And I would tell them all these stories about what we did on the farm. And, um, and that the only reason my parents weren't here is because the schools here were better. They lived up there and I was here to go to the school. And one lie led to another lie to another lie. Mm. And then when my grandfather went moved us to another place in Irvington, which was heaven on earth. It was an old estate 
30 acres, great mansion house, which had belonged, I only recently found out, to the son of Alexander Hamilton, James Hamilton, mm-hmm. had owned that. But it had, was in the hands of people who were using it for a summer camp. And so we had this beautiful mansion. We lived in what would have been the caretaker's cottage part of it with my aunt and uncle and cousin and my grandfather. And um, this was heaven on earth for me. We had horses there that I could take care of all summer for about $30 they gave gave me for taking care of them. I could ride them all Mm. around. I had all this beautiful property to be on. I went to a new school. My first night in that house, I felt a presence in me that I will never forget. It was undeniably some presence. And I made a promise that I would never lie again, that I wanted a new start, and I was never going to lie. Now, you know, as I say in my book, I haven't kept that completely. I do occasionally tell little things. But I never do it without feeling like a stab in my heart mm. that I have violated a covenant that I made that night. But that move was almost a, um, a manifestation of your previous imagination. Yeah. With, with the horses I know. and the farm and the land. Unbelievable. Mm. Unbelievable. Right across the street, this ha- the big mansion house is not there anymore. It's right across the street from the little annex to, I think it's, Columbia University, they have an agricultural annex called Mm -hmm. Nevis. Nevis was the island that Alexander Hamilton came from. Mm -hmm. And this had been in Hamiltonian property, apparently, at some point. Right. Yeah. So, so, so that sense, that presence that you felt within you, yes, it, it may have been something like what George Fox exactly also Mm -hmm. felt. It was, I, I really believe that that's true. Yeah. We'll return to that in a few, yeah. in this conversation, because I think that's central to the experience that's had in Quaker meetings, right. correct? Exactly. Or at least what you seek. Tell us, um, George Fox obviously was central to the, to the development of this yeah. faith tradition, but so was Margaret Fell. Who was Margaret Fell? Okay, well, Margaret Fell um, previously had been married to a man named Thomas Fell, who was an attorney and the later a judge. They opened their house, which was called Swarthmore Hall. And, you know, anybody who knows about Swarthmore is mm-hmm. a Quaker college. I know that's where it comes from. Um, in England. And they used to put up traveling ministers. Um, and Margaret Fell really, really thought that Fox was special. Um, now... And she says something really important about something she learned from one of his um, sermons, I guess you'd call it, or preachings that he had made in a church when she was present there. Um, And she said uh, that he said, you know, you will say that John says this, or Matthew says that, or the Bible says this, but what dost thou say? How has God touched your heart? What has God said to you? What do you say about God's work in you? She, that was a really important thing. Now, her husband Thomas died. Um, I have the date on that, something around like 
1658, um, her husband died. And he had been actually a very good judge. He had kind of let some of the Quakers who had come before him for blasphemy and various things kind of go easy. Mm -hmm. um, but he was gone. And after a while, um, I don't know the exact date, she did marry Fox. And she became a very central organizer for the early Quaker movement, um, because I guess Fox didn't have these gifts that she had in doing that. So she was an important person. So then, of course, the faith um, moves, if, if you will, from England here to the colonies. Right. And, um, and a little fellow by the name of William Penn <laughs> yeah, little played a major role um, in the development of the Quaker faith here in what would become the United States. Tell us a little bit about that. Who was okay. William Penn and what did he do? Okay, well, William Penn um, was, you know, again, born in 1644. I'm cheating by looking at my little notes. <laughs> but um, he, uh, his father had uh, been an a, uh, a supporter of the king and the monarchy during the, the crisis between the Puritan uh, Cromwell uh, monarchy fight in mm -hmm. England. Right. And uh, he was owed a lot of money by, that, by the king, and that money was repaid to the Penn family uh, by a huge tract of land, which became Pennsylvania, and a lot of the Delaware uh, Valley, River Valley um, in Maryland and Delaware were also part of it. Many, many Quakers came over here. The very earliest Quakers who came over here, though, um, probably among the very first was were some uh, who had gone to Barbados and then from Barbados had gone into New England. Um, because while the, the Quakers were persecuted in England, as were the Puritans for a while, and, you know, the Puritans, they had the separation, some went to Holland, some stayed in England. Um, uh, you know, so they came over, the Puritans came over, they settled in Massachusetts area. Um, and then, you know, uh, the Quakers came over later. Um, but some Quakers visited the early Massachusetts territory. George Fox went, went to Barbados and another, and women, all right, and we got to get to the women and men thing, because mm -hmm. that's an important thing for Quakers. But there were women converts to Quakerism who also traveled in the ministry, two of whom I, I want to just mention. One of was Mary Dyer, who uh, went over to New England. And it during this time, right before 1660, in the late 1650s, um, were heavily persecuted in Boston area, the Puritan area. And they were afraid of them. It was called the antinomian controversy or whatever mm -hmm. in New England. And those were people who believed that God actually spoke to them, um, not only through scripture, but inwardly. And they did not like that message at all. And so somebody by the name of Mary Dyer was actually um, executed in uh, New England, in Massachusetts. For believing that. For preaching the Quaker uh, gospel, so to speak, and three other men. Now, Mary Dyer gets all the attention, but three other men were executed. Three other Quaker men were executed. So, so, that, so that persecution followed them from England over to, 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 England, to the New, New England. World. Yes. Wow. 
Because they were persecuted right. in England as well. We didn't. Mm. Right. But another really, a person you don't have on here who should be on here is somebody by the name of Mary Fisher, another Mary, um, who was a Quaker. Uh, you know, she had joined the Quaker movement. Um, and she also went around in ministry all over the place, went over to Barbados, but she also went to the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Mm. and preached to him. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because in this time, yeah. the, the, within the, the, the Quaker movement is this evolution of the strength of women yeah, and to be heard, whereas in many other traditions it, it, at this time, this, that, was a, that was a no-no. That just did not happen. Right. So very progressive. All right. Very progressive. All right, so this is part of... Uh, a part of early Quakerism that I personally think does not quite get enough attention because mm -hmm. it's very biblically rooted. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Quakers have kind of like torn themselves away a little bit. But I'm just going to talk about the equality testimony mm -hmm. from a little bit of a different angle than many Quakers would articulate it. Okay. Because it's partly something that I've only just recently kind of matured in me. Now, Fox would say uh, in Fox's journal, I have some quotes. I don't know if you'd be interested in them, but um, I have some of them pretty much easily at hand because I have done lots of notes over the years on it. Um, and Fox in, in his journal has a lot of references to um, early Genesis writings. Um, and he talks about, um, you know, this good seed. Okay, he talks about Genesis 3.15 is sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium of the Bible. And it is where after the fall, the so-called fall, where, and People don't often realize that there are two creation stories in Genesis. Yeah, the first creation correct. story, male and female are made at the same time. There is no story of taking the rib from Adam and making a woman. That's the second creation story. First creation story. Um, and then there is in Genesis 3.15, there is the after the fall story, there is this little passage that says something about how um, there will be struggle between you and your seed, and then uh, your seed will, um, you, you know, will bruise his heel, or will bruise your heel, and you will over bruise, uh, you will overtake the serpent. It's something like that. I I don't have the Bible in front of me, so I, I don't know. This was extremely important in the church. It was kind of like seen as this prophecy of the coming of that which would overtake Satan in the end, and that would be Christ. Right. Because of the different translations that were coming out in this time period, yeah. there were all kinds of pronouns used. So sometimes the word seed was used, and he will bruise your heel, and sometimes uh, it would come out she. Correct. It depends on whether it was the... the um, it depends on which translation. The Geneva Bible, which was Fox's translation, mm -hmm. um, did, I'm not sure which pronoun it used, but Fox 
For Fox, this was one of the most important little parts of the Bible. Um, and some of his journal writings would really emphasize that. And this is from Fox's journal, and he says, um, When I myself was in the deep, under all, shut up, I could not believe that I should ever overcome. My troubles, my sorrows, and my temptations were so great that I thought many times that I should have despaired. I was so tempted, but when Christ opened to me how he was tempted by that same devil and had overcome him and bruised his head, and that through him and his power, light, grace, and spirit, I should overcome also, I had confidence in him. And then later he says again, another reference to this bruised head of the serpent. I, again, I heard a voice which said, Thou serpent, thou dost seek to destroy the life, but canst not. For the sword which keepeth the tree of life shall destroy thee. So Christ, the word of God that bruised the head of the serpent, the destroyer, preserved me, my inward mind being joined to his good seed. That bruised the head of this serpent, the de destroyer, and this inward life did spring up in me to answer all the opposing professors and priests and did bring in scriptures to my memory to refute them with. And this is, and these things are key. Um, I was come up in the spirit through the flaming sword. That flaming sword is what was placed at the door to paradise to keep people from re-entering it. Into the paradise of God, all things were new, and all creation gave another smell unto me than before, beyond what words can utter. I knew nothing but pureness and innocency and righteousness, being renewed up into the image of God by Jesus Christ, so that I say I was come up to the state of Adam, which he was in before he fell. And that state was a state in which men and women were equal. We were all in the garden. We all had the presence of God with us day by day. And the fall did not have to be the dominating force in your life. And that's what Quakers were all about and still are about. Mm -hmm. Entering into that, right. into that purity in mm -hmm. a sense. Exactly. And then back in the 1600s in England, that would also be a threat to the male dominant monarchy all and obviously <clears throat> the Cromwells and the, and the Roundheads. Yeah. yeah. All makes sense. All makes a yeah. lot of sense. I know. And um, again, it is true, you know, that Fox said, you know, Moses says this and, you know, John says that, but what, what? do yeah. you say? Yes. What canst thou say? And so that's important. But abandoning this, you lose something. I'm Reverend Rob Way from the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. We will return in a minute with Rini Lape. Thank you for listening. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. We now return to our conversation of Quakers, the Religious Society of Friends. It's interesting because it, it seems to me that central 
to the Quaker tradition seems to be this interesting interplay of two ideas. One is the idea of God. Yeah. And I'd like for you to speak to how Quakers essentially view, experience, or define, or describe this indescribable reality, right? God. But the other is this idea that God is, in a sense, within us yeah. and capable, if we are capable, if you will, of listening and hearing and experiencing and manifesting, in a sense, that aspect of, of the universe of God. So yeah. speak to us about those two really central Quaker ideas. Yeah. What is God and how is it that God is within us right. or manifested in us? Um, for me, um, I'm in the camp which says that you really cannot really articulate what God is. God is a force that you feel within you in ethical, purposeful. What is the purpose of my life? What's the meaning of my life? What direction should I move? That Socrates spoke to and our biblical fathers and mothers spoke to and those who came before us. You take us tiny little seeds that we are with our 70 or whatever 80 years on this planet. You cannot only know it in isolation in yourself. But that presence, my first night in that new home that we were in, guiding me, not punishing me, but telling me I had done wrong and I needed to do right. Foxes, the voice in him that told him not to go along with what everybody else was saying, to follow his own understanding and to join himself with Christ in him. That's the way he saw it, that Christ was a force within him. And we call, we call it that because that's our tradition. Mm -hmm. um, Socrates would not have called it that, but it was a voice within that guided him and, and kept him from making any... He was famous for saying, you cannot know what is true. You cannot know it. You can move in its direction. You can be guided. You can feel it, but you can't know it. You cannot know it. Mm. Knowing is a different kind of activity. The language, I think, that's used is the presence of God exists in everyone. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And in all things. I mean, you know, the Franciscan, excuse me, but the Franciscan approach it's in the cosmos. It's in the matter. It's in it's incarnate. Everything. It's every in everything. Mm. So, do you see yourself as part of Protestant Christianity? I see myself as part of everybody. Ah. I do. The richest food for me has been in Scripture. Um, but I have to say, I prefer the scripture of the Catholic Church because it brings in some of the Hellenistic Greek um, world that Protestants wanted to close out because it wasn't in Hebrew. It wasn't strictly, you know, strictly biblical. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, 
Yeah. So that's why. So is it true that your faith has um, rejected elaborate ceremonies, religious ceremonies? And, yes. And, and why? Um, I think that uh, or the Quaker um, the Quaker tradition is to uh, it's it's many things, but as far as worship is concerned, it is trying to um, put people in touch in some way with that inner movement, that inner voice, that inner. Uh, could be a scolding, could be uh, an insight, it could be um, something you feel should be said and isn't said enough. Um, so that's their meetings are in silence to try to shut down for a little while all of the voices of other things that pull us in a million different directions and try to focus. And modern day life, you know, there's a lot of this kind of like meditative, different meditative practices right. and, and everything. So everybody's trying to, to do that same thing. But Quakers do it, um, in, my, in my experience, with a consciousness of the tradition that they're part of and the articulation of, all, of a lot of things in ways that are more Christian, perhaps. But not for every Quaker. Mm -hmm. So you get Quaker. rid of exactly as, um, as Reverend Rob explored. You get you get rid of all the elaborate yeah. rituals and all the rest. Please correct me if I'm wrong. You also get rid of clergy. We do. So um, we are all priests. We are all yeah. pastors um, in the unprogrammed tradition of Quakerism, which was the original one. Um, <laughs> And so you sit in silence, you basically come in and you sit in complete silence for, it used to be longer, but now it's about an hour. Um, and I remember my first times when I started going, I really did have that shaking. I, I don't know. I don't have it so much anymore, maybe because I'm more used to it. But um, knowing that you have like a sort of an inner connection connection with the divine guide for life uh, in that meeting it makes you reluctant to kind of speak too soon um, you want to feel some encouragement to speak and and I remember in the early days that I I, I really felt that mm. um, as kind of a little bit of a scary experience but um, you know, it's good. So, pacifism plays a major part within the uh, Quaker tradition. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, yeah, uh, because realizing that, really, uh, in the early Quaker movement, among the, there were, of course, a lot of armies being organized mm. by the different forces in Cromwell England, and the Roundheads yeah, and the exactly, King. Yes, yes, right? Yeah. And the church. <laughs> and one of the most um prolific group of converts and invites into the Quaker came from those armies, mm -hmm. actually. Fox did a lot of preaching among them and he wasn't really clear. I don't think he was completely clear on this for a while. But I think um 
many friends were that if there is that of God in every person, to go about trying to like accomplish worldly things with arms and, and you know, just hurting other people, killing other people, was really not what God was wanting us to do. Mm. And, um, and friends suffered rather than do that um, in the early years. And they, they would not. And then I, I know one of our dear friends, my husband's and my dear friends from long ago, he's not around us anymore, but Dan Seeger, I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he brought a case, his case went before the Supreme Court and he won the right not to go and fight in the Vietnam War because he was a Quaker um, and he had the right to to be a pacifist. So pacifism is a very, very important testimony among friends. The peace testimony, just speaking truth to power, but not using arms, using love, using convincement, um, trying to reach that of God in every person. The world would be a much different place oh, yes. if we all now, like many um, religious and spiritual traditions, Quakerism has its own rich diversity within it. Yes. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but there are Quakers who might be seen as rather conservative and those who may take a more, if you will, universalist or expansionist view. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that yeah. to us? Um, I feel like I bridge that gap <laughs> in some <laughs> okay. ways. I, it's hard to explain, but um, yeah, there are, you know, universalist, even what they would call non-theistic friends. Mm -hmm. um, and I meet with them on a, you know, fairly, my husband and I both go to New York yearly meeting up at Lake George every year. And there are a number of them up there. They're also sweet people who love the Quaker tradition, but you know, they don't really feel like they have anything to say about what God is. And I understand that. And they're not even sure that there is, you know, other than human consciousness that they have confidence in and they have confidence in the movement of that consciousness or whatever to, uh, to guide lives, but they don't really believe in a God beyond. Um, that is among the unprogrammed friends um, you know, probably a small number. I think most friends would say that they are theistic, that they are believers in mm -hmm. God. Um, there are, so unprogrammed meetings were generally, unprogrammed means there's no minister there, no hierarchy or anything. Everybody's now. Now, what friends found out after loosening this among their, you know, constituents is it sometimes led to chaos. And they needed to have some way of putting dampers on some things that they felt were not appropriate or where mm -hmm. people, they really didn't, were not convinced that people were tapping into God in them, but other forces and other ideas. And so they did uh, create, you know, systems of having elders, people who had been in the tradition a longer time, and they could, uh, you know, bring discipline to the group and that sort of thing. So what is a conservative Quaker? A, a conservative Quaker would be, I, I think I'm a conservative Quaker in a way. I'm also liberal, but I'm 
conservative because I do branch this too, because I do believe, I don't believe you have to go to the scripture to get this truth or this guidance. But I think when you do, you get fed by scripture. You mm. get fed. And you get fed by the early friends, their ways of articulating how they experience this guidance they, you know, that they, of God. I didn't know it was Christ Jesus in me, that moment when I was told not to lie for the rest of my life. But I do believe that now. I believe in that Christian, you know, you could call it doctrine. Um, I do think that when you, uh, you know, and disentangle yourself from all structures and all, you know, traditions, that you're in a world that Quakers were not in, not in the mm. 17th century. So it's a historic fact that the Quakers have been involved in many oh, yeah. social activist roles, right. uh, advocating for the Native American rights, right. uh, the movement of abolish of slavery, uh, women's suffrage movement. What about Quaker, Quakerism led to this deep commitment to human rights yeah. and you know, that activism? Yeah. Well, I think it was that belief that there was that of God in every person, in every child. I would say in every fetus, but not every Quaker would say that either. But there is that of God. And so there is, you know, you do not violate that. You appeal to it. You love that. And, that, and that's even within the non-believer or the yes, non-follower. Absolutely. Absolutely. How would you open that person up without reaching for seeing that? Yeah. Seeing how that person, you know, again, it's the, the competing goods. The com you know, what is it? Anais Nin was the one. I we do not see things as they are, but as we are. Right. That's <laughs> Anais Nin said that. Yes. And we have to realize that people are different and see things differently. We need to get in that. There's no. Mm -hmm. That, if, if, that namaste moment, I see the God in, the God in me sees correct. the God in you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You, you mentioned Quaker services, and you used the word programmed and unprogrammed. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about that. All right. Thank you for asking me, because I think I just discontinued that um, no, before I should have. So, yeah, so there were unprogrammed friends, and then um, they're conservative and liberal in that in the East Coast area. And I, I don't even know why, but it could be perhaps as people went west, uh, there were fewer Quakers there. And I think perhaps they had uh, a little bit less density in their groups. And, um, and it could have been some of the Great Awakening movements in American history. I'm not sure what it was that moved some Quakers to adopt having ministers, having mm -hmm. pastors. But some do. And mostly those are more out west. So that's why I put that together in my mind that I had it to do with not being in the highly dense Quaker areas on mm -hmm. the East Coast. But there are a few Quaker programmed meetings even now in New York and, and things like that. Now, you don't call them services, you call them meetings. Meetings. And, and, and program services actually do have music and yeah. readings and in services in the almost, if you dare call them, Christian traditional Absolutely, sense. Absolutely. Right. Correct? Yeah. Um, and truly, I mean, I belong to Westbury Friends Meeting, and we have three times a month, we have singing before 
the meeting for worship, mm -hmm. and it's very important for a lot of us. We sing. Um, uh, you know, we also, you know, do other other things, but and occasionally we would have used to have a, a wonderful gentleman, Noel Palmer, who uh, actually was a Quaker pastor, uh, but I didn't know him in that context. I only knew him as a member of our meeting at Westbury, and he used to occasionally read scripture to us and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. But I guess in program meetings, they do have some music, they have some singing, and then they have or a Bible reading, and then they have silence. So, and then unprogrammed services are different. What I think they're called waiting services, correct? I've never heard that term. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I've never heard that mm. term. But. but tell us about unprogrammed services. So, unprogrammed meeting, um, a meeting for worship or a meeting, uh, meeting for worship with a mind for business, that could be business meeting, mm -hmm. um, is just coming in and just being quiet and sitting quietly. In the Northeast, we have these lovely, old, beautiful, old Quaker meeting houses. I've been were, to a few. Yeah. They are extraordinary. Very simple. Very simple. No stained glass. Absolutely right. No color. I couldn't even get a quilt put up in our meeting. <laughs> a little controversial. It distracts. Yes. <laughs> it distracts. That's exactly what this is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and in other places where I first met my husband in Asheville, we didn't even have a meeting house there. We met at the YMCA. And people were another place in Raleigh where I met uh, would just be in a house um, where people had devoted it to having Quaker meetings there. Um, and it's just silence unless somebody feels moved to speak, led to speak. Mm -hmm. Those are how, that's how we would use it. And then it could be... Sometimes long, sometimes very short. Mm -hmm. Could be also a song. So people could be led to sing. You could be mm -hmm. led to sing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the way it is. So do Quakers have religious holidays? Um, well, early Quakers were very into not doing anything the way that anybody else did it. So they abandoned... The celebration of Christmas and Easter, those kinds of mm -hmm. things. But that has filtered back in. Okay. And even early times when I was going to Westbury, when they had quite a lot of young people there, they would have a Christmas celebration or Christmas um, event. And we do that now. We have, we celebrate Christmas. And used to, friends, another tradition that friends had was they didn't even use the regular names for the um, days of the week because there were too many sort of um, pagan references to or months for example mm -hmm. first month they they used first month second month third month they didn't want to bring in you know anybody like i don't know saturn no you know they didn't want any sundays they they were first days second days, first month, second months. Okay. So they abandoned all of that. All of the early pagan pieces yeah, that came of, into many religions. That's right. Yeah. Some of those early <clears throat> early friends were very, very anti-establishment. You know, they didn't want to do anything the way anybody else did. Mm -hmm. How does someone become a Quaker? Well, if you attend, you go for a while, you attend 
uh, a meeting and you learn that you like it or you and you read about it the way that I, I did. We studied it mm -hmm. uh, intensely. Um, and then we wanted to get married in it. Now, friend's idea about what marriage is is also completely different. You can, you just speak your vows. You Actually, vows would not even be a Quakerly term because you don't ever make a, you always speak the truth. Mm -hmm. You don't ever swear to speak the truth. So you would make your commitment to your partner in a meeting for worship. But like that, if you want to become a member, you want to you join, you would ask to become a member, and then usually they would form a clearness committee for you. Mm. Um, that's what they did with me. And, you know, wanted to know about, again, former marriage, um, former commitments in different churches and stuff like that. Mm. And would I, you know, do I feel really called to be a friend? Um, and then they would report back, to, I guess, to ministry and oversight, and then you would be brought in. So it's okay. Um, I've always found with, with so many different traditions that they, they're closed door um, and not feeling welcome in. Now, for the Quaker tradition, it's okay for someone from who is not a Quaker to attend a meeting. Oh, yeah. Okay. You never asked any questions about who comes, you know. If you want to go, you just go, you attend. If you become a regular attender, you know, that's fine with mm -hmm. them. Um, they do really like you to make a commitment. If you feel one with the community, they mm -hmm. want you to do that. It's not like the Catholic Church again, I, you know, um, where you make a, a general commitment to the Catholic Church and Catholic doctrines and, and there are things. rituals of initiation like baptism and That's confirmation right. yeah mm -hmm. right right um there's nothing like that in quaker meeting um uh yeah but again as a, i'm both i'm officially a member of saint patrick's parish in on long island mm -hmm. in huntington and westbury friends and i remember asking the priest um, at that parish, you know, people join other organizations. Any problem with me joining friends? And he said, no, they, they have no doctrinal requirements at all. Um, and I felt I am a Quaker and I'm also a very traditional Roman Catholic. Yeah, but I, I would say not, 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 I never grew up a Roman Catholic. I didn't right. grow up a Roman Catholic. I'm, I'm, I feel a certain draw to the tradition. Mm -hmm. I could have, I know, I have known other friends who joined the Orthodox Church, but one that goes back to the first century, you know. Yeah. What is it about Quakerism? I mean, we're, we're getting very close to our close. Okay. And I still would love to know, because you've had a magnificent and, and rich um, spiritual journey. Yeah. What is it about Quakerism that not merely attracted you, but that keeps you there. What is it that it that it gives you that it exp that it expresses that continues to motivate you? Um, again, I it the most the closest that I've ever been to God are moments when that I have had that I feel are God moments in my life. That first moment, you know, that I had about telling the truth was 
critical. But there have been other moments. There have been other moments when I have felt led by God to do something or not to, you know, not to do something or um, that inner voice is to me a critical part of my faith. And, um, and for me, Quakerism feeds that part of my spiritual life that is about that. Um, I do feel like you can get too much into your head about things. So I think it's also a good thing to have both people in other generations that you look back to for their wisdom mm -hmm. and people in other traditions who feel, you know, that other things perhaps are being lost or articulate other things about the faith. Mm -hmm. You know, what is that? I don't think you can really put words around what faith is. In it's magnificent that you you every time you've talked about having that experience yeah. of the ineffable of the divine of the sacred of god yeah. you talk about an experience of direction yeah. of being essentially directed in one way or another do you have experiences of god that are not about direction that are about just being in yes i mean probably as i've gotten older i have to say Um, I'll have moments where I will like walk through Penn Station and end up in tears and I don't know why. I just feel a love for everybody in that station. Everybody in this city. Everyone, every different color, every different nationality, every different, you know, whoever. I just feel so um, privileged to be a human being on this planet. You have been listening to our series, Open Heart Conversations, offering dialogues from the world's religious and spiritual traditions, recorded here at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. Please visit us in Manhattan or online at upspiritualarts.org. Until next time. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 